So Anne and I are, are learning to dance. Uh, we're taking lessons at the senior center. Uh, one of us is old enough to join there, and you can guess which one. <laughs> now we're taking uh, ballroom dancing, uh, and it's a lot of fun. The tango, East Coast swing, rumba, merengue, the foxtrot, and even the waltz. Now, the impetus for this is the age of our kids. Earl is already engaged and the date is set, and likely the other two will follow suit at some point in time. And Anne thought that it would be a good idea if we could dance at their weddings. And I mean really dance, not just wiggle like a worm on a hook. Hence the need for lessons, right? So in just the, the few lessons that we've had, my wife is already a good dancer. She's so very graceful and coordinated. And I, on the other hand, have special challenges. <laughs> I, I really do have the proverbial two left feet, but it's more complicated than that since both of my left feet are on the wrong legs. And they constantly get in the way of each other. The instructor, Anne-Marie, is always saying things like this. Larry, put this left foot here and the other left foot there. And it's really all confusing for everyone. But I have to tell you, as bad as I am at it, I really like it. <laughs> and I'm trying hard, and I want to keep dancing. I, I mean, I think it's something that Anne and I can do together as we grow older. It's good exercise fun and it's social. And while I don't watch Dancing with the Stars, I've watched a handful of clips on the internet of some, some finalists at dance competitions that are just amazing. I mean, if you have ever thought the waltz was a boring dance, you would never think that again once you've seen someone dance it who really knows what it's all about. The grace and the speed the elegance and the style combined to give motion to the music, a treat for the eyes as well as the ears. Now, I know I'll never get that good, especially with two left feet on their own legs, but, but that's what I want to look like. That's what I want to aim at. That's what I want to work towards. Yet even to begin to approach that, especially from where I am, it takes work. And if I wanted to copy, to do just a, a kind of a segment of what those gold-level dancers do, I'd have to slow the video down, and I'd have to watch where they place their feet and, and how they hold their heads and, and the way they place their hands and what they do with their arms. I'd have to practice each step piece by piece and turn by turn, move by move. And it would seem like just so much plodding. Put this foot here, plod. Turn in towards you, plod. Stay back as you step in, plod, 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 plod. But you, you do it enough, practice it until it becomes more natural. And all of a sudden, to my surprise, every time it happens, and it's rare enough for me, that plotting becomes real dancing, and then it's fun. <laughs> to learn to dance, you, ha you have to take the dance apart, and all the style disappears. You learn its parts, and then you put it back together again, and you're dancing with style, always if you're like Ann, and sometimes if you're like Larry. 
a lot of things are like that. To, to understand them, to make them your own, you have to take them apart and put them back together again. If the thing you're dealing with is something of beauty, the loveliness disappears while you study it, and it returns only when you reassemble it. When it comes back together, though, you appreciate it better, and it's more yours than it was before. The passage we're going to look at this morning, in my thinking, is like that. There really is a certain beauty, a, a symmetry, a balance between the parts that disappears when you try to talk about it. And what we'll say here today will seem like just so much plodding along compared to merely reading the passage and letting the simple elegance wash over you. And then, too, there's nothing new here. Uh, we've seen it all before. And yet, once we've looked more closely at what's said, it's to be hoped that we'll understand it better and it will become more our own. And we'll never maybe read this passage quite the same way again. And even though we've seen all this before, there's still power in the Word of God which can make even the familiar as fresh as a new snow. The passage we're going to look at this morning is once again in the book of Romans, and I want to invite you to join me there. In Romans chapter 5, where we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 21. So in, in this passage, Paul's thoughts are really almost dancing as he makes a point and then a counterpoint and back and forth he goes moving fluidly between opposite truths. He says something about sin and all its darkness and dreariness and then his thoughts turn immediately to grace and its light and life and then back again to sin and then to grace and and, and sometimes he's smooth and elegant, and other times it's staccato and sharp. But it's all intended to lead us to a better understanding of both of those truths, but especially the truth of grace. There's no way for us to follow Paul's pattern here. I mean, we can make note of it, but for us to talk about it, we're going to have to stop the dance, and we're going to have to take it apart and look at it, and, and We'll have to talk about one side of this thing, and then we'll talk about the other, and, and, and we do so in hope that our heart understanding will grow. And we're going to have to trust God to, to put it all back together again so that it becomes part of us. So we'll first talk about sin and the various points that Paul makes about it. And then we'll talk about righteousness and what that means to us. But before we can do either of those things, there's one issue that we kind of need to deal with to get it out of the way. It really fits nicely within Paul's argument, I think. Uh, and I think that the Romans would have immediately understood what Paul was getting at. But for us, it's a kind of speed bump in the road impeding our progress. And if we, if we don't address it, um, it may distract us. And, and then when we would read it the next time, the next time we did read it, we, we'd wonder just why Paul would say such a thing. Paul says something about the law, and he's talked about the law before in this letter. But in verse 13, he says something which is troubling. And so we read there, to be sure... Sin was in the world before the law was given, 
But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Now, what troubles us about, is that, about that statement is the second half of it. Sin is not charged against anyone where there is no law. And if that's true, then we feel that everyone would be better off without the law. A kind of ignorance is bliss theology. But obviously and intuitively, that's not true. So just what is going on here? What is Paul doing? What is he saying? Well, I believe that what Paul is doing is he's addressing an idea which was current in those days. You see, people were wrestling with this idea of just how does the law fit into the world at large? I mean, they understood that it was meant for good, but it was given just to the Jews. And what about those who didn't have it, they wondered. And so they reasoned, well, since they didn't have the law, they weren't accountable to it. Again, it was that, that kind of ignorance is bliss theology. And maybe that's true as far as it goes. But it doesn't take into account the image of God within humankind. And that image made them. It makes all people, whether they have the law or not, aware of right and wrong. They were still guilty of sin which is exactly what Paul says in the next verse, in verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Abraham to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. You see, people didn't have the law, but it was engraved on their hearts. It was written on their conscience. They still knew that things like murder, adultery, theft, lying, just to name a few, were wrong. And so they sinned when they did those things without having the law, and they reaped the penalty of that sin, which was death. Paul was really telling the Romans that their ignorance of bliss theology was wrong. Even people without the law, people that are in that condition, still know what sin is, and they bear the consequences of it. Now, Paul's going to come back to this idea of the law near the end of the chapter, but, but it fits in nicely there, and we're going to pick it back up when we get there, when Paul takes it back up. Now, we've already seen, though, in verse 14, one of the points that Paul makes about sin and that is it brings death. That's where Paul really begins his argument in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin, and that's when Paul interrupts his argument to deal with that misunderstanding we just talked about. But what we see here in this verse what we all know is that one man brought sin into the world. One sin brought death into the world. And death came upon all people because all sin. This is a fact of our human existence that is absolutely undeniable. Now, there are several things we need to note about. First, Paul lays the blame for the condition of our world squarely on the shoulders of the man, Adam. Excuse me. And if 
you know the story, then you know that Adam, when he was confronted by God, tried to blame his wife, but Paul had none of that. In another place in Timothy, Paul tells us that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. What Adam did on that day, he did with his eyes wide open. There was a mitigating factor in what Eve did. Satan had deceived her. She was tricked into what she did. But the man had no such excuse. He was guilty as sin. It was his act that brought death upon us. And doesn't that make you feel proud, men? The other thing that we need to mention, because we all feel this, in one way or another. We all feel that it's really kind of not fair that we should have to suffer for Adam's sin. But i got to tell you something. That's the nature of sin. It kills, and it affects everything and everybody. It cannot be isolated to one person in his or her acts. What we do affects everything. We're made in the image of God. With that comes potential for great good and glory or terrible harm and sorrow. We don't have to like it. We might not think it's fair, but it is what it is. This is an undeniable fact of our existence. We, every one of us, were born sinners. Now, if we were in a court of law, we, we could argue that there were mitigating factors, just as there was for Eve. At least for some of our sins, we might be able to claim, well, we couldn't help ourselves. But let's be honest. You and I, all of us, male and female, have done things just as deliberately as Adam did. Things for which we have no excuse at all, which we did with our eyes wide open, knowing it was sin. And, and as such, you understand that we are as guilty of bringing sin and death into our world as Adam was. So let's not play the part of the victim here. Let's own what we've done. Let's admit the truth so we can appreciate better what God has done on our behalf. So one man brought sin into the world. One sin brought death into the world. Death came upon all people because all sinned and all have been guilty, become guilty as Adam in their sin. But that story doesn't stop there. Verse 14, which we've already read, tells us death reigned over humankind. And this means more than simply that people die. It means that death rules over their very existence. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that all people have been held in slavery by their fear of death. I, I don't know what examples to give for that because I think they're so numerous that I wouldn't know where to start. Our whole culture is afraid of death. They try to take it and put it away from their thoughts as far as they can, at least as far as their own death and the death of their loved one. We shut people up in hospitals and nursing homes, and we get them away so we don't 
That's just one of a number of examples that you can look at that show the fear that people live under because of death. In one manner or another, we have been ruled by the fact of death which came in sin. One man brought sin into the world. One sin brought death into the world. Death came upon all people because of all sin, and we've become as guilty as Adam, and death reigns over the great mass of humankind. And with all of that, there is still more to say. Sin brought not only fear of death, but terror of judgment and condemnation. So in the middle of verse 16, we're told this, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Did you hear that? The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. Sin changed everything with our relationship. Once we were his beloved creatures enjoying his friendship. When sin came in, God became our judge. Sin must be judged. It must be condemned. It must. In our heart of hearts, we understand that truth. All of humankind knows this, but they'll go to great lengths to try to deny it. Not only do we fear the end of life, we fear what follows. So all the religions talk about uh, some kind of existence after life here on this earth ends. All of them offer some kind of hope that uh, our sins won't come to haunt us at the very least, not as completely as they should. Maybe, as in the Greek religion, people end up thinking it's a land of dreariness, uh, but the full weight of sin doesn't come upon you. Or in the Eastern religions, after a series of reincarnations, we cease to exist. And so our sins ultimately have no real effect on us. But then there are the atheists. And all they want to do is deny everything about it in a desperate hope that there is no day of judgment coming. But deep down in our hearts and all know sin must be judged and we know it must be condemned and that really brings its own kind of terror one man brought sin into the world one sin brought death into the world death came upon all people because all have sinned, all have become as guilty as Adam death reigns over humankind we're all sinners, we're all judged we're all condemned. Now that's a, a, a pretty good summary, I think, of everything which Paul has said here on this subject of sin. But you see, when Paul wrote this, with every point he made, he offered a counterpoint. And we could sum up all of everything that Paul says in this entire statement or passage in, in this one statement. Humankind sinned, but God acted. Paul says something about sin and then he tells us what God did for us. He mentions another sorrow caused by sin and he tells us more about what God did. And right here though, I think we ought to change our imagery. If what Paul wrote was kind of like a dance with a point and a counterpoint, the way we're talking about uh, 
what he broke. It's more almost like a fight where sin has thrown all of its punches and God counters them in a flurry of knockout blows that we're going to see. Sin entered our world and death because of sin, but what God did was he gave us a gift that destroyed the power of sin and death. We didn't deserve it. God, in his goodness, because he is love, gave us what we need. Verse 15 introduces the gift. It introduces it into the conversation about sin. But the gift is not like the trespass, Paul writes. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? God gave us a gift. The gift was his son. And God's grace to us overflowed. I mean, Paul emphasizes it by saying, how much more did that grace overflow into our lives? If sin caused all the horror that it did, God's grace is greater still. It overflowed. The picture is of a, of a cup being filled and past the brim so that it's running over. Like the psalmist said, my cup runneth over. The Greek word means uh, more than enough, an abundance, uh, a bounty, riches beyond measure, as Paul put it, his grace overflows to us. The trespass was awful, but the gift and the grace which brought it is more than just a cure. It's more than just simply erasing the blackboard of sin. It's grace that overflows into our lives, bringing with it all kinds of good grace and wonder. Our sin, which was a, a mountain of despair in our lives, is simply dwarfed by the grace of God, and, and it disappears in its shadow. God's grace and the gift it brought overflows into our lives, and it's greater than all of our sin. Our, our skin in all of its heart cannot even compare to what God did for us in his grace. And that's what verse 16 says. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. There was a terror of judgment and condemnation which came with just one sin. How much more following many sins? gift coming after all of those trespasses and all of those sins brings justification. God's grace overflows in our lives and the gift has been given and we have been justified. We've been made right in the sight of God, not by our own efforts, but through his grace and by his gift. We are justified. And again, I'm going to say it, I've used it before and I'll continue to use it. It's that simple, childlike, wonderfully clear definition of justification. Justified, never sin. Just as if I'd never sinned. In the court of God's law, we are declared not guilty. Actually, you know, it's better than that. We're declared innocent. Something our court system can't do. The best you can hope for in a criminal case in this life is the verdict of not guilty. 
But God sees us through the gift. He sees us just as if we had never sinned. God's grace and the gift that brought it overflows into our life and dwarfs our sin. God justifies us through that gift that we become as though we had never sinned. But there's still more <laughs> to God's grace. Sin beat down on us. It's upon us. It beat down and the weight of it was crushing us. But God acted. He makes us more of what we need to be. Not only are we innocent in his eyes by his gift, we're made righteous by him. Verse 17. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in this life through the one man, Jesus Christ? I know a lot's being said right there. But I can tell you what it says in a short sentence. Because of God, you and I, if we put our faith in Christ, are it's not just that our sins were taken away. They were. But God has put his Holy Spirit in us so that the life we live, the life that we've been called to, we can live that life so that we can do the right things. As Ephesians puts it, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us. Verse 19 says much the same thing. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. Adam introduced sin into our world. And we all became sinners because of that one act. But God brings goodness and grace. He offers us righteousness, which we didn't earn, which another did. Adam's act brought sin. God's gift, his son, brings righteousness. Now, you and I, we know we don't do this perfectly. We still fail. You know what the difference is? The difference is, is now we can do it, even if we don't always do it. And even in our failure, we know what the right thing to do is. We know we should confess and repent and keep on keeping on. God's grace and the gift that brought it overflows into our life. God justifies us through that gift. And we become as though we've never sinned. And he makes us righteous. He makes us able to live as we should live in this world. But again, that flurry of knockout punches continues. There's more yet to say. The death which was ours because of our sin has been swallowed up by the life that God gives. Verse 18. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one act of righteousness resulted in justification and life for all people. Justification and life is ours because of God's gift. Just as sin brings condemnation, so righteousness brings life. Only here, you know, we're, we're talking about real life. I mean, we're not just talking about length of days, which can be come just a weariness and a burden. But life, full and real and complete. 
clean. And yes, it is eternal. It, it's God's life in us welling up and flowing out of us. It, it's better than waking up on a beautiful summer morning with the sun shining and the birds singing, feeling rested and ready for adventure. You know, it really makes a day like that good. It's because it's a hint of the good which God has in store for his people. I know we don't always experience that way. Sin still nags at us. It stalks us, lies to us, tries to rule over us. But the life is in us, even when we don't feel it. And if when we don't feel it, we live by faith and we trust God. God, grace, the gift it brought overflows into your life and mine, overshadowing our sins. God justifies us through that gift, and we become just as if we had never sinned. And he makes us righteous. He makes us able to live as we should in this world, and we are alive forever with God's life. And all of that is good. It's very good. And then in verses 20 and 21, Paul brings his argument to a close. He says something about the law, which he's already said before. But then he tells us something else about God's grace. Paul tells us the law causes sin even more than we would do without it. So we read in the beginning of verse 20, the law brought in uh, was brought in so that trespass might increase. And, and if that seems strange, because it sounds as though the purpose of the law was to increase trespass, then I just want you to remember that our fallen nature, it's our sinfulness which reacts to that good thing in such a way. But what we really need to know here is what Paul writes next. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And the reason for it in verse 21, so that justice sin reigned in death, so also Christ might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ. Sin may abound, and it does, but grace abounds all the more, and that is powerful and wonderful and amazing, and it really changes everything. So, what have we said here today? Well, one man brought sin into the world. One sin brought death into the world. Death came upon all people because all sin. All have become as guilty as Adam. Death reigns over the great mass of humankind. We're all sinners. We're all judged. We're all condemned. But, God has. His grace and the gift it brought overflows into our life, and it dwarfs our sin. We were all dead, but the gift of salvation was offered to all. Those who accept that gift, God justifies, and we become as though we had never sinned. And he makes us righteous. He makes us able to live as we ought to in this world. And we are alive forever with him, with God's life in us. This is the Christian story. 
sinners are justified, made right, given eternal life, and where sin grows, grace overgrows it. That's good news. That's really good news. Grace can give more than sin can ever take away. All of that to God's glory. Now, look, we've said a lot here now we've covered a lot of materials but, but there's one more thing I want to say before we leave here this morning you see when we want to tell someone what it is that we as Christians believe or why we're Christians there are usually three things we need to communicate to them. the first two of those things are the bad news and the good news and, and I have uh, told you both of those this morning we know what the bad news is. It's sin with all of its devastation and the death and the fear and the terror and the judgment and the condemnation which rules our life without Christ. And we also know what the good news is. It's God's gift of his Son given by grace which justifies us and makes us righteous and gives us eternal life which overcomes all of our sins and failures. It's the knowledge that Though sin abounds, grace is greater still and abounds all the more looming over sin and swallowing it up in life. The third thing that has to happen, if we really want to communicate God's truth to people, is to ask this question. What are you going to do about it? You know the bad news. You know the good news. So what are you going to do with what you know? You know, if you come to Christ, you will have all that we've talked about here today, which we could sum up by saying you will have forgiveness for your sins and eternal life. If you don't come to him, you're left with the other. It's what you deserve, and it will destroy you. And I say to you, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, don't wait. You know the truth. Don't wait. You don't know when your life will be required of you. Come to Christ while you can. Don't wait. Come. Now when we close our service in song a little bit later after we observe communion, there are going to be a couple of people standing over on that side of the room. And um, if you need to talk to someone about your relationship with Christ, that you don't have one, that you never yet put your faith in, or maybe you know that you trusted him at some point, but you have wandered away from him, and you want to find your way back to serve him and walk with him, then he'll be able to help you in that process. But if you need to,
provided a way for us to escape from all the evil that there is in this world, especially that which is in us. Thank you that you are patient with us. And Lord, you continue to call even when we ignore you. For any person who has been ignored, don't let them be today. Convict them beyond their ability to endure so that they come.